the weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. Something lit up humanity around 500 BC. And yes, I'm going to say BC and not BC before Common Era. For logical reasons, that doesn't really make any sense. Um, and it's, it's just so pedantic, I don't care, <laughs> to be quite blunt. Anyway, this thing has been described variously. I, I think that the first historian to pick up on it was Carl Jaspers. He called it the Axial Age. The modern philosopher Charles Taylor, and modern by the way, I mean contemporary, he's still alive. Um, I think he's still alive anyway. In his book, The Secular Age, calls this era the Great Disembedding. Arthur Kessler called it, quote, that tremendous century of awakening, unquote. About this time, philosophers, mystics, and religious thinkers throughout the world came to realize that reality consists of two levels, heaven and earth, or what Vogel would refer to as transcendence and eminence. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, eminence. These thinkers, or the 500 BC seers as I call them, they taught their followers that each person has an individual soul that should be open to the divine. Now, this was not just a religious thing. It was also a social thing. It told people they had relevance beyond their group. Regardless of a person's position in the tribe, he had relevance as a creature of the divine. And this is huge. Existence was no longer seen as a single cosmos where natural occurrences were synonymous with magical ones. Community life was religious life and earthly rulers were seen as gods. Existence was no longer compact, to use the term favored by Eric Vogelin. Existence, under the guidance of the 500 BC seers, became differentiated. Earth-heaven related, but not the same. Two elements of one reality, but distinct, different elements. Vogelin also referred to to this as life in the metaxy, M-E-T-A-X-Y. It's that in-between area between heaven and earth, between transcendence and eminence, and we all live there. These 500 BC seers were the first ones to start picking up on this. And this newfound awareness would morph, develop, and evolve throughout world history, and eventually find itself embedded in the U.S. Constitution and its council that government and religion should be separate. All right, so <clears throat> excuse me. I'm gonna go through what I think are the top ten 500 BC seers. Uh, scholars, by the way, have long disagreed about the era span. Carl Jaspers said it spanned from 800 BC to 200 BC. Others narrowed it. Vogelin extended it to include the advent of Christianity. But they all seem to agree that the eruption, and eruption here, by the way, is like spiritual eruption. It's with an I, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. I suppose eruption with an E could work as well, but spiritual eruption occurred in, uh, they think it occurred in the 500s, like the 600s, um, or the 6th century, rather. 
So I'll say from 600 BC to 450 BC. That's when, that's like the core eruption occurred. All right, so the first one I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at these 10 thinkers. Um, the first one is the Deutero-Isaiah. Now, the Israeli prophets, or the prophets of Israel, present the biggest problem with the 600-450 BC dating. Most of the great prophets came before 600 BC, like Elijah and Moses, whatnot. And by the way, I, I believe that's evidence that the Israel prophets had true revelation. That's why they're they're kind of ahead of the curve on this stuff, but that's a different topic. And regardless, um, there were significant prophets. There are four major prophets. Two of them, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, came from this era. But most significantly, this era saw the Babylonian exile, in which much of the population of Judah was carted off to live in Babylonia in 589 B.C., while their Judaism as a religion flourished. That's huge. Um, in the past, if you took people away from the land, the religion went with it. Like the, the gods were kind of associated with the, with the terra, you know, with the, with the land that was there. And when you carted the population off, they had to find a different set of gods. That didn't happen in Judaism. First time ever something like that happened where God was seen not as tied to the land. And in fact, the religion flourished there once it was stripped of any state association because obviously the Jews being enslaved in Bab Babylon or having to live in Babylon didn't have a state anymore. And it's the first time that a religion existed independently of an earthly realm to support it. It was arguably the definitive, the definitive break with the cosmologically compact view of existence that dominated prior to 600 B.C., this era also produced a poet known as the, quote, Deutero-Isaiah, unquote, who wrote chapters 40 to 55 of the book of Isaiah, which is arguably the pinnacle of the Old Testament. You'll hear these readings during Advent and Christmas if you're Catholic. No one knows for sure when it was written, but most agree it was probably near the end of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile, by the way, they ended around 530. I think that they put the date at 529. But it happened in stages. Um, <laughs> when, when the Persians beat the Babylonians, uh, the, the, the Persian king told the, the Israelites, you can go back to your homeland where you came from. Uh, Persians are actually fairly nice people, at least back then. Uh, very tolerant. And they said, no, go back, uh, resettle your lands. You know, sorry, with, sorry with what the Babylonians did to you type thing. But then some didn't want to leave. They're being treated so well by the Persians. And you know, been there 60 years for Conrad Loud. In history, that's a blip, but 60 years is a long time. And people had moved into their homes, <laughs> you know, moved into there. And back in Israel, we, we see that same thing going on today. And they didn't want to give up their land. So they had to be forcibly taken back. Uh, Nehemiah was a prophet that was basically a steward of the king, saying, hey, we're allowed to come back here, or Persia is going to come back here and forcibly make it happen. And so it took place in four different waves. Um, and by the way, that whole thing about the four waves and getting back, that's all from memory. So I don't know. I, I try to make sure these podcasts are factual. And I try to stick to the script because everything I write in the Monday column and then on this podcast, I verify through, through books. Um, petty things like a specific date I might get off Wikipedia, but 
now pretty much everything in here, I can pretty much assure you there's a concrete book site, not an internet link. Anyway, um, so the, anyway, the, the second one I want to talk about, the 500 BC seer, is Confucius. And yes, I'm not using, or I am using the anglicized term Confucius. I think it's Kungza, K-U-N-G hyphen T-Z-U. I remember being assured when I was at the University of Michigan as a history major that if I use a term like Confucius, I'm practically shoving opium down the Chinese throats like the British did, you know, forcing my Anglophile ways on them. So I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm just not. I, I just gotta gotta do what I can here. And then the guy was Confucius to us, so he's Confucius for purposes of looking at the 10 BC seers. This guy, like Socrates and Christ, he wrote nothing, but he was an aggregator of Chinese of Chinese tradition. He used it, Chinese tradition, to teach a new humanism. He believed people could be good, but they needed to live in a society that respected them as persons with God-given rights, who needed to be educated in the sacred. Heaven is up there, yes, but individual souls needed to be open to it, taught Confucius. Lao Tzu, the semi-legendary founder of Taoism, mounted a water buffalo at the end of his life and rode off to the western boundary of China. There, legend tells us, a farmer recognized him and asked him to write down his philosophy of life. The result, the Tao Te Ching, a book filled with thoughts, or non-thoughts, about trying, or not trying, to live in the Tao is the perfect accompaniment to his act of turning his back on the world by mounting that water buffalo in the first place. The Upanishads. These are the basic philosophical texts of Hinduism. Hinduism developed a troubling nihilism, a philosophy of despair that thinks paradise, moksha, is attained through annihilation. But these texts reveal so much philosophical subtlety, it's hard to believe they came from the primitive civilization where they originated. Now, most of them predate 600 BC, but they culminated near 500 BC. The Mahavira, Mahavira, he was a founder of Jainism. According to Western scholars, though the Jains claim he was the last of a long series of Tirthankaras, and I'm no way I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but they said that he's the last of a long line of uh, these seers, which descended from prehistorical times. And this guy, he founded one of the three major religions of India, Hinduism and Buddhism being the other two. The Buddha, Gautama Buddha, also known as Siddhartha. He was a prince. His king father was told upon his birth that his son would, would become a great king or a Buddha. The father wanted him to become a great king, so he kept him sheltered through his young adult life, living in luxury, insulated from harsh reality. But at age 29, Siddhartha went outside the palace and saw an old man, a sick man, and a dead man, and he was rattled. He then saw an ascetic, and the people with him explained who the ascetic was, and Siddhartha resolved he must find a way out of suffering. He spent a prolonged time in meditation and emerged as the great Buddha, teaching that suffering is eliminated through the Noble Eightfold Path. Pythagoras 
a pioneer in geometry, yes, but mostly a mystical philosopher who some credit with establishing the first contemplative monastery. His interest in math was merely an outgrowth of his interest in eternity. Numbers are eternal. Everything else perishes. Geometry was ecstasy. It purges the soul of earthly passion and is the principal link between man and divinity. He also used music to purge the soul. Heraclitus All is change. You never step into the same river twice. All is fire. He was a mystic who hated superstition. This enigmatic thinker de deposited his great work in the temple of Artemis in Ephesus so it would not get into the hands of the unwashed masses. And now only fragments survive. I really hope to do a podcast on Heraclitus at some point. Uh, I know he kind of fascinated Vogel and many others. Thales. This guy almost didn't make the list, but he is considered the father of philosophy and one of the seven sages of ancient Greece. He looked for the one unifying element of this puzzling world and concluded it is water. Parmenides. Jacques Maritain called him the, quote, slave of being, unquote. Through rigorous logic, Parmenides established that all is being, a completely one, absolute, immutable, eternal, incorruptible, indivisible, whole, and entire unity that encompasses all and is perfect. Being is so total, Parmenides concluded, no other beings can exist and there can be no change. Now these contrary conclusions, Heraclitus, all is change, and Parmenides, change is impossible, vexed thinkers for centuries until Aristotle in the 300s thought us out of it through his four causes. But now I'm getting beyond the 500 BC Sears. Aristotle has to wait for a different day. As always, thanks for listening.